0: Well, we're continuing our study on rest and today we discover the antidote to restlessness by looking at a story, a story that deals with a prophet who succumbed to tribalism. Now I am excited to chatting with you and with my colleague Joey O about this but before we do so can we do what we always do be in our studies and that is bow our heads close our eyes and talk to God Father we want to ask that as your word fills the world from India to Indonesia from Loma Linda to Kuala Lumpur. We pray that your people, moved by a spirit of giving, by a spirit of unity, by a spirit of compassion, may be faithful emissaries of who you are. We pray that you descend upon us now as we gather to study, and we pray that you direct our minds and our hearts towards you, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The myth that is called America begins with the dictum, I believe these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. And the myth continues to propagate itself on the shores of Ellis Island as the first thing that people coming to America see is beautiful Lady Liberty. And as they glean over and look at this land of promise and purpose, as they forget the peril that has befallen them, they read the message. That not only do we believe certain self-truths to be evident, but also that we receive. We received your poor, your tired, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. And then, then the next chapter is written, as President Woodrow Wilson says that one cannot be a complete American if one still thinks of oneself in groups. Wilson is appealing to this notion of us as a gleaming city on a hill, united by our purpose, our common ideology, our principles. There were many threats that we needed to contend against. We dreamt of a society that saw beyond race and ethnicity, gender, political party affiliation, or religion. Communism, the Cold War, those were the threats that united us. Those were the foils in our narrative. We weren't tribalistic. We didn't understand tribalism. We were united. And then, well, then, Messages like the one that Martin Luther King utters in that now famous dictum calling Sunday at 11 o'clock the most segregated hour in America. Protests that fan across the country from forgotten voices that dwell on the margins and that now are yearning once again to breathe free. The story of Americana has been challenged. It has been challenged because the reality is that although we believe certain truths to be self-evident, those truths are not only and always translated into the realm of everyday life. That we no longer have space for the poor, the tired, and the huddled masses yearning to breathe free. Instead, we hear the words echo in the air, I cannot breathe, I cannot breathe. Amy Chu, a professor at Harvard University and a writer talking about the myth that is Americana, writes, well, she writes about the problems of tribalism, how human beings are connected and created as social creatures intended to participate and partake of groups. Chu talks about a study that was done with toddlers. Toddlers dressed in red and blue. When those toddlers saw screens with pictures on them of other babies dressed in red and, and blue, the blue babies liked the pictures with blue babies and disliked the pictures with babies wearing red outfits. Conversely, the babies wearing red outfits felt a yearning to connect with the pictures of those babies that wore the same colors they did. Tribalism. Tribalism that threatens to split our society by its seams. We don't have toddlers wearing red and blue anymore. Rather, we have adult people, women and men of faith, educated and affluent, that refuse to connect with one another because of their red and blue affiliations. Because of their penchant for wearing a mask or not, or their position towards a vaccine, we have experienced now what Chu calls the radical tribalism and politicization of our country. Greg Ten Elmsloff, a professor and theologian writing about the problems with tribalism notes well it notes what we intuitively already recognize and that is that in a society that calls forth certain sins and places them at at the top of their hierarchy Those societies make it impossible to see those sins within themselves. So America was built upon the premise of equality, unity, compassion, this new identity, and so we we fail to see tribalism and segregation, dispossession, and hate and division. to call out our tribe. And to want to belong to a tribe is something that I think we've all experienced. Think about the last time you went to a sporting event and you donned the colors of your favorite team. You groaned and moaned as the umpire, the referee missed a call against your team and you connected with total strangers. We like to belong to tribes, but the problem is, too often, our tribes become reclusive. And the more reclusive our tribes become, the more restless our souls become. Today, we talk about the restless prophet. We talk about Jonah. Jonah, the one who is called to prophesy to Nineveh. Jonah, the one that is concerned with his reputation. I want to posit to you that the real problem, the real concern, the real issue that is dug itself deep into Jonah's heart is tribalism. And the possibility that his tribe must become broader causes him to feel restless. See how the story begins in Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. It says, the word of God came to Jonah. And it said, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because his wickedness has come up before me. And at that moment, when Jonah hears this message, he decides to run. He is restless at the possibility that God calling him to preach destruction upon Nineveh might actually create and engender some repentance from the Ninevites, and so he runs away. To be sure, Jonah is comfortable with preaching condemnation. Because condemnation ultimately creates separation, doesn't it? And the moment when you say, our society is colorblind, we have no economic or ethnic divides, we fail to see the sin in our midst. Condemnation engenders separation. The problem with Jonah, though, is that he understands that repentance and, conver- and conversion demand inclusion. That true conversion and repentance that follow the preaching of the word of the Lord must begin with an understanding that our tribes must become broader, bigger. As Edward Markham says, we must draw, draw circles that bring them in. Well, is unable or unwilling to do this, and so he runs. He goes on the opposite direction, not towards Assyria, but towards Spain. Restless as he is, he recognized that the Lord won't leave him alone, and so there is a storm. And as the tempest crashes and makes driftwood out of a boat, lots are cast. The sailors and passengers of said boat are ecumenical to a fault, and so they ask people to pray to their own deity. And then... Then Jonah accepts his responsibility, and it's almost as if God is already working at making his tribe broader. You know, Jonah doesn't understand mercy and forgiveness, Jonah understands condemnation, and so he believes that the only response to the storm is punishment. Consequences must be had. Guilt must be determined. Grace is not part of Jonah's language because his tribe is hermetically sealed, sealed around the belief of the God of selection, the God that prioritizes a people, the God that demands sacrifice. But those members of that ship, they know about another God. They cried out in verse 14, Lord, please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, have done as you pleased." Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard. And the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Already the tribe is getting broader. Already that myth of Israel as the elect, as this selected tribe that cannot grow any broader is beginning to crack. It bends and buckles against the reality of a God who wishes to replace that restlessness of exclusivism with the peace of sharing each other's stories. And you know what follows. Jonah is swallowed up by a fish and the fish, well, the fish becomes his abode for three days while in the fish he prays. He prays a psalm, a psalm that recognizes his current plight, but that is unable to recognize that God is calling us to replace restlessness with rest. And the rest can only be found when it is enjoyed, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, in the company of foes. Notice what he says in verse 8 of chapter 2. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of gracious, praise, grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. And Jonah still can't see beyond his own tribe and his own people. So his heart grows restless as he is, well, as he is deposited on the shore of Nineveh. Three days he spent reflecting in the belly of the whale, and now he must reflect as he walks across that city for those same three days. It's 72 hours in which Jonah can see people, hear stories, witness cattle and sheep, converse with people as they go to market and witness children as they get ready for school. For 72 hours, Jonah has become immersed in the rhythms of Nineveh with the hope that he might be able to broaden his tribe by identifying, identifying with those men, women, and children that dwell in that doomed city. But Jonah can't do it. Instead, he grows restless, he paces back and forth, he paces so that he won't have to preach. But then, and then the message comes. And rather than rejoice and celebrate, the prophet mourns. He mourns because the Ninevites have turned from evil. From the king on down, they have, well, they have worn sackcloth. They have confessed to the Lord, even the animals have fasted. It is a repentance on the scale that has never been seen in Israel, And if the the purpose of a prophet is to comfort the afflicted while at the same time afflicting the comfortable, then one could say in Jonah chapter 3, success. Mission accomplished, Jonah. Well done, good and faithful servant. One could expect now the prophet to retreat and find peace and rest. But instead, much like Elijah, Elijah, In Jeremiah, Jonah grows weary with the prophetic call. His heart cannot find rest because his vision of God is too small, and so he begs to die. Two times he pleads with God in chapter 4 to kill him, even after he has witnessed firsthand, mind you, the primacy that God places on human life. Listen to his words. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, It would be better for me to die than to live. In that fourth chapter, Jonah's heart has grown so restless that he wishes to exit the arena of life. And God is still trying. Much like that father does in that parable that we all know so well in Luke chapter 15. He is trying desperately with the son that has remained home with the one who has been faithful to recognize that grace, the grace that brings rest to weary hearts is always about broadening one's base, about opening up a space and inviting new people into the tribe. So I want as we conclude the words and the myth that is your life, maybe that you believe has to be defined by positions on masks or vaccines or political parties or sports affiliation. I want to let those words begin to challenge that myth as they linger in the air. God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said. I am so angry I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, You've been concerned about this plant. Though you did not tend it or make it grow, it sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, where they, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left? And if you can't show concern for the Ninevites, Jonah, what about the animals? The decision is yours, my dear friend, rest or restlessness. And the answer to that question will depend on how broad you allow your tribe to become. Joey, let's talk about the prophet of restlessness.
1: Mm, wow. Man, when you began with uh, the American ideals, and these are ideals that you know many of us, including myself, We hold very closely to our hearts. But you said something really interesting to me, that when we elevate these ideals and when we elevate certain sins above all others, we have difficulty seeing them in ourselves. So seeing how we actually fail those ideals, because to fail those ideals would mean that we would face a crisis of identity. If we're not a unified country, if we're not all men are created equal in our our society, then then who are we, right? And there's there's a definite fear there.
0: Yeah, yeah. And um, like we said, Greg Ten El- Elmshauf, who is a professor at Biola, actually notices uh, that the problem with a lot of Christians, and he's speaking as a Christian apologist, mm-hmm. obviously, is that we don't have the capacity for introspection Hmm. in these sins that are central or cut to the core of who we are Hmm. because they would challenge our identity. And it's kind of the same thing that Jesus is talking to with uh, the Jews in that famous Sermon on the Mount, right? The Jews consider above all other crimes adultery and murder. Those two things Hmm. are, are really problematic in both of those crimes, Uh, have swift uh, repercussions if you look at Jewish law. And yet Jesus is saying, well, the problem is that you fail to see how you are not living up to the ideals Mm -hmm. because you are uh, elevating these sins in your hierarchy, in your ethical hierarchy above all others. And I think you're absolutely right. I think that causes a crisis of identity, which then causes restlessness because after all, we're all about our tribes and we can't have a tribe if we don't have identity.
1: Wow. Yeah. Do, do you think that because we assume that we've got this, you know, like, like the Jews you, you talked about, um, because they were so strong against um, adultery and murder that they, the repercussions were so swift, they feel like in our society, there's no tolerance for this. Does that create an an opportunity for us to take our eyes off it and stop examining ourselves and having that introspection like you're talking about?
0: Yeah. So I think tribalism is really dangerous because it forces you to look at uh, as outsiders Mm. as enemies. So you begin to look at those that don't wear your same colors Mm. as your enemies. And the problem with that is, once you can, once you see someone as an enemy, then you can justify certain behaviors against them. Mm. And so I think when when it comes to to the Jews defining themselves rather narrowly with these two with these two ideals, um, they were able to see the Romans that practiced their uh, a high degree of adultery, obviously, and murder in their society as less than. Mm. Well, the Romans then turned around and saw the Jewish tribe and said, yeah, I mean, these two ideals, and this isn't the Roman populace, it's Roman thinkers of the time, had great respect for Jewish moral ethics when it came to adultery and to murder. But they had serious questions when it came to Jewish ideals of equality. Hmm. And so the Romans then turned around and said, yeah, but... Your your ideas of adultery, for example, to take a, to take uh, that as a case in point, are predicated under the ideas of property rights and not under this ideal of equality. Mm. And so you're you're missing the point. And it was really interesting to to hear uh, Philo and Josephus speaking with uh, Neoplatonic thinkers of the time because they were. Striving for the same things, but somehow talking above each other mm. uh, because of tribalism. And so I think, I think the real danger that causes so much restlessness is this idea of tribalism, because it speaks to our very identities. And when, when, once those identities become, begin to crack, then we have to do this really thoughtful, introspective process of recreating our identity, which is, which is not fun.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's uncomfortable because then we we have to question a lot of things about ourselves, Mm -hmm. a lot of things that we assume about ourselves. And and tribalism is easy because, you know, by creating an us and them dynamic, then as long as we're not like them, then we are safe in us. Mm -hmm. Right. So. Do you think that's where this this idea arrives that arises that you know the United States is like the pinnacle of equality and unity and these ideals, and that nobody really has freedom outside of the United States?
0: yeah, so absolutely. Uh, Joey, what what I realize just in in thinking about this these these concepts of tribalism and how they propagate through the stories we tell each other, I discovered something really, really interesting. Um, We are able to see the tribalistic specks in other people's Mm. eyes, but we fail to see the tribalistic planks that really cloud our vision. Take America, for instance. So we talked a lot uh, during the Cold War about the freedoms that this country afforded uh, vis-a-vis communist countries, for example. And to be sure, there were a lot of restrictions that were placed upon people living in places like the Soviet Union. But uh, when you ask the experience that African-American people had in the 50s and the 60s in America and why several of them actually left and moved to the Soviet Union is because they were able to find in a communist other country... um, the freedom and the liberty they hadn't had in the states there were no segregation there was no second-class citizenship in in those countries Hmm. and so i think it was really comfortable to focus on the sins that were being committed in the soviet union Because it it prevented us from dealing with the sins that we were committing here in our country, which was, as you said, founded on these ideals that I think we all think are really appealing, and they're the highest ideals, right? Unity, equality, compassion. And so I think that's what tribalism does, not only politically, uh, but also religiously. We can see the sins that other faith traditions have Committed, yeah. Um, but that sometimes blinds us to the own work of restoration that we need to engage in our in our own faith tradition.
1: Wow, wow. That that makes me very uncomfortable because, you know, I grew up thinking everything about communism is bad, right? Like demonizing communism, and I don't think. Either one of us would say we would want the United States to be a communistic country. We we definitely don't That's want that. That's not what we're saying. That's not what way. we're saying at all. But in demonizing this ideology, what we what we how we've hurt ourselves is that we are unable to see maybe the spots of good that are in there, and perhaps see a reflection of ourselves in in that society, so that we can understand. Um, the planks like you were saying in our own eyes yeah yeah
0: yeah and and there and it's not just like we said Joey it's not just an issue that has to do with uh political positions like capitalism or or economic positions capitalism and communism uh, re, uh a republican nation versus a socialist system uh, it also has to do with faith traditions mm. so Christianity if you think about it was built on this great heritage of the God in the margins, right? Mm-hmm. You you hear the, the call that God places upon Moses' life. And then you, you go beyond that. And we've talked about this before, how the whole purpose of Israel's election was to broaden its tribe and bless other people. Um, and yet Christianity was used uh, in America and in the same time as a tool that the mm-hmm. state used to continue promoting the moral superiority of America versus other countries. Mm. And it caused a lot of really committed, faithful Christians, uh, Cassius Clay, to name name one, to go to Rome and experience the Olympic Games over there and how there is no segregation and Mm. no second-class citizens. And it actually forced them to change his religious beliefs as well. So not only did he accept a different political framework, he also adopted a different religious framework mm. because uh, the tribes that he belonged to were unable to see the damage that they were committing and, mm. and hurt the hurt that they were inflicting upon him. And so I don't think we're saying, uh, like you said, that we want a communist country or we want uh, to move into Uh, the Islamic faith system. But we, what we are saying is uh, Christianity in general, Adventism in particular, uh, needs to be very careful about falling into the trap of tribalism. We Mm -hmm. need to constantly be Mm -hmm. self-examining in the light of a God who is always trying to broaden uh, this. It's his scope rather than restricting it.
1: Yeah. And that really is the danger with tribalism, right? It, it, inhibits us from broadening our scope like God is broadening His. And, and, and as you masterfully described from this um, this book of Jonah, jo- throughout the whole book, God is trying to expand His tribe. And, ex- and more importantly, God is trying to expand Jonah's mind, mm-hmm. right? Um, because as, as the writers of The Quarterly um, pointed out, You would think that at many points in in this story, God would have given up on Jonah and said, man, there is there is a hundred other prophets that I could call to do this job. I don't really need you, Jonah, but he goes to extraordinary lengths to try to teach Jonah and expand his mind. So like like the writers of this, this um, this quarterly said, um, Jonah needed. Jonah needed this mission just as much as the Assyrians needed Mm -hmm. the message, right? So Jonah needed this experience in order for him to broaden his mind about uh, beyond the tribalism of his own community and see that God has a heart for everyone, Mm -hmm. even those people That he very rightfully so hates Mm -hmm. because they were they did terrible things. Bad
0: people, those Assyrians were bad people.
1: Yeah, they did terrible things um, to the Israelites. I mean, flaying people alive. I mean, that's, (laughs) I mean, that's incomprehensible. So I understand why he hated them, and yet God still had a heart for them, and that was so hard for Jonah to accept.
0: Yeah. So you know, as as we're reading these four chapters, the thing that keeps coming up. Is and I think, by the way, the the title of this week's quarterly is masterful. Mm. Uh, the restless prophet, because mm. there is some restlessness, right? Yeah. Um, he gets this commission to go and speak the word of the Lord, and uh, it's it's this beautifully delicious satire. Mm. Uh, because it, and and I'm assuming that if you were reading it. Uh, in its, in the original context, it would have it would have been almost humorous because here you have this man, who is committed to speak, who is called to speak the word of the Lord and to travel to Nineveh, and instead he gets on a ship, mm-hmm. and he tries to get as far away from Nineveh as is possible within the maps of his age, um, because the message that he is that he is calling mm-hmm. or that he is being called to preach. Is, is making his heart restless. Mm. And here's the thing that I found really uncomfortable as I was reading. If the message that we're preaching is causing us to feel restlessness and discomfort, it's because our God is too small. Wow. And so I think as as we talk about how to share um, a message of peace and rest with a world that, you know, we've been talking for 12 weeks, desperately needs it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you're right. I think we need the message as much as the world needs the message uh, because our God might be too small.
1: Yeah. And there seems to be a connection that you're pointing out between um, discomfort and growth, Mm -hmm. right? Um, We see that in working out when we're lifting weights if we're lifting weights that are really comfortable for us, we probably aren't growing, right? Yeah. Um, if we're playing a sport and and it's not challenging us and we're not making mistakes, then we're probably not growing and improving. I remember also that when I'm memorizing things, when I was studying back when I was in school and I was studying and for tests, um, as I'm memorizing things, there's a point where I feel very, very almost restless, like my heart is restless and I, I feel a need to like move around or something. But that is right before the breakthrough moment when it clicks for Mm -hmm. me, that that restlessness. So there is this discomfort that is associated with growth. And if we're not feeling some discomfort, that means that God, our perspective of who God is, isn't really Mm -hmm. growing enough. So it almost behooves us to challenge, continue to challenge our own perspective of who God is Mm -hmm. and what God is doing in the world.
0: Yeah, that's that's I think the only way in which communities, as you've stated, I think so articulately, can grow. Mm. The problem is that for communities to grow, communities need to evolve and metamorphosize, right? Mm. Um, so I remember uh going to a football game, and you and I like football, it was a preseason game. Um, my father used to take me to the LA Coliseum in the early nineties. And mm-hmm. so I grew up uh, watching Jerome Bettis play for the Los Angeles Rams. And there there was this affinity uh, that my family couldn't understand because we come from the East Coast mm-hmm. and um, we weren't able to, I wasn't able at least to root for the Patriots. And so my dad, when, when we heard that uh, the Rams were coming back to LA, we were very excited. And there was a game that was being played Um, with the, uh, the first game that was, that was being played in in the preseason. And I was very, very intentional about getting completely new gear. Mm -hmm. Um, so the, the colors changed, uh, when, when, uh, the Rams were playing in St. Louis, it was kind of this dark blue and gold. We Mm -hmm. changed back to powder blue and, and yellow. And I remember having several people that flew, seeing several people, at least in the stadium, that flew from St. Louis um, with their old uh, jerseys. And we looked at them and and there wasn't really a desire to accept them into into our base because they were the other. Right. Um, And so it's dawned on me that that's how we move a lot of the times Mm. when we have to grow and metamorphosize as a community or as a tribe. Um, It requires us to recognize that there are going to be people coming in that are wearing different jerseys or different colors, Mm. and rather than exclude them or or look at them and say, well, you don't really belong here, uh, it it probably benefits us because it makes the cheering section bigger, (laughs) to continue the analogy. Yeah.
1: And and as hard as it is for me to say this um, as a Washington football team fan, um, even when it's an opposing team, right, it there is there is a there is a need for us to recognize that these these are people, too. I mean, it sounds funny to say that. But I I remember I grew up really despising the Mm -hmm. Dallas Cowboys, like despising so much so that I, you know, I thought of. Everybody who were fans of the Cowboys as being just like some immoral beings, Mm. because how could you root for this terrible Mm -hmm. team? Like what kind of what does it say about you that you are a Dallas Cowboys Mm -hmm. fan? And then, and then I met some Dallas Cowboys fans here a on few, a, yeah, just, just a, a few, few on our staff, and you know they weren't that terrible. You know there, there were some redeeming qualities about these people, and it made me rethink this idea that that just because you're associated with this group that you are a terrible person. And what was even more challenging was for me was when you know our, our senior pastor, who is a Dallas Cowboys fan, started sharing with me stories about like players and coaches of the Cowboys who were really great people. And it, it forced me to sort of reevaluate my, my impressions about who mm-hmm. this team was. Mm-hmm. Now, it, it is a little bit silly because these are just football teams. But it does show this, this idea of that tribalism, especially when we start to demonize the other tribes, and throw, th- that we have this, this almost tendency to throw out all the good I mean all the all the good with along with the bad, right that there is there is no to think that there's nothing redeeming mm-hmm. about these people that there's nothing that we can learn, but in doing that, we actually hurt ourselves mm-hmm. we we create harm for ourselves because it it inhibits us from mm-hmm. learning from growing and from expanding our view mm-hmm. about who the tribe of God is mm-hmm.
0: and I think you you, you can, because we're, let's face it, we do need an identity of some sort. So I think the way in which, in which you move past kind of these very her, hermetically sealed tribes to something mm-hmm. that has free or flowing borders is by saying, look, what is it that you like about the Washington football team? Um, what is it that you like about the Dallas Cowboys, about the LA Rams? And I think I think you can recast your identity, not as part of this particular tribe, but as a fan of football in general. Mm. And so the, the umbrella then becomes bigger. And mm. so I think it's important to, to continually be thinking not only <laughs> about how do I expand my tribe, but also how do I Provide some identity or some yes. basic framework to ground this new, bigger tribe, yeah. because it doesn't work when it's just something amorphous there, floating in the air that accepts everything and everyone. What you have then is chaos. Mm-hmm. And so, I think um, uh, some more really positive that Jonah could have gone is God is showing Nineveh the same mercy that He has been showing Jerusalem and Samaria for years. Yeah, um, and so. We are now uh, going to unify under this new identity as uh, the followers of a God that is compassionate above all other things. Uh, so you, you do need to, to be very intelligent and very thoughtful about kind of the groundwork that you're building uh, to, de- to define these new tribes that are going to get bigger and bigger
1: and bigger. Wow. Yeah, because we actually often do the opposite. Instead of trying to make it bigger, we sort of create our identity based on what differentiates Mm -hmm. us from the people around us what is it that makes us special Mm -hmm. what is it that makes us different and we define that as our identity it's like we've talked about before the whole bounded set Mm -hmm. thing where where these boundary markers that make us different from that separate us from almost like cells cell membranes that separate us from other people that's what creates our identity and you're saying instead of having those membranes just focus on what's at the nucleus? What is, what is it that we love about this? Um, and, and what, I- instead of identifying individual cells as separate things, actually they share, all share the same DNA. And so that they're part of the same organism, even though they're individual mm-hmm. cells. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's so powerful because instead of, cause that mindset actually expands mm-hmm. the tribe of God.
0: And, and by but by working at that, and I love the fact, Joey, that you use the term mindset mm. because it's not going to happen by accident. It's going <sighs> to require some intentionality yeah. uh, to recognize what that bounded set is. It's going to require some some thoughtful just introspection, and it's also going to require some analysis of the group that you belong to. Mm. Right. Um, so I think that if you're trying to redefine this identity, or to, tr- or, or you're trying to move and shift away from this restlessness that is brought on by tribalism, mm. in order to accept the rest that comes from God's all-encompassing grace, I think you need to develop that, mm. and developing that is a craft. Mm. And um, to develop any craft, um, you need to create an ecosystem that allows that craft to flourish. Mm. So you play tennis. I'm sure you have an ecosystem around your life that has caused that particular craft to flourish. Mm. So the question is, what kind of ecosystems are we building Mm. in order to create the craft of compassion Mm. versus... Um, this kind of temptation towards tribalism, which we all know, causes restlessness.
1: Wow! Wow! What kind of ecosystems? You know, because really, the ecosystems we create typically are those that create separation, mm-hmm. right? Because you know, they talk about the two principles, the two most powerful principles that define friendships are the lazy principle and the narcissistic mm-hmm. principle. We gravitate to people who are close to us. The lazy principle, because we don't have to move anywhere far. And the narcissistic principle, we gravitate to people who are like us, right? So yes, our default setting is to create communities of people who are just like us, who think like us. And then in that way, we create separation. So then I guess to break that apart, we would have to intentionally enter into communities that are not like us Mm. and the communities that maybe are not near us. Mm. And that would be very, very uncomfortable. If
0: only the lesson was talking about
1: a prophet
0: that had to prophesy <laughs> to a community that was nothing like him. Yeah. Um, that, I think, is the perfect antidote, though. It's the only antidote towards to tribalism. Mm. Let's face it, tribalism creates restlessness. Mm. There's been much work done, again, in uh, as we live in this increasingly politicized climate. There's been a lot of work uh, that has been studying uh, the resurgence um, in this new phenomenon phenomena called Trumpism. Now, mm. we don't want to talk about the political positions. We simply want to, let's simply talk about the phenomena, because we believe in the freedom of people to vote for whoever they want. But there's a lot of research that has been done that uh, has noticed that that phenomena, um, phenomena of virulent, kind of following a a political figure uh, in spite of of a lot of problems that make us uncomfortable stems from a fear that the country is changing in some ways that are palpable right and so i saw um someone i saw a, a banner uh by the side of the road that had that uh that famous saying uh, and to us, a child is given. Uh, and we all know that beautiful promise of the Messiah. And next to it was the figure of our former president. Now, regardless of what candidate you vote for, I think that there is a real problem when we begin to connect religious lingo with political talk. Mm. And but I think that has happened because there is a certain sector in a a certain tribe in America that feels like the country is changing. It's becoming more inclusive. It's becoming more diverse. It is also shifting in its moral mores and what we consider moral principles. And so in their response to to all these shifts is not ask the question, how do we kind of take the great things that we have, um, and infuse them into this new dialogue? But it's rather, how can we retreat? Mm. And so you've you've had this politicization on both sides of the aisle, mm. because there's a fear of, ooh, my tribe is changing, and mm. so. There was what we saw in 2016 and then there was what what we saw in um, 2018 and 2020 from the left, which has also become much more militant. And Mm -hmm. you have kind of the same reality of groups talking over each other Mm -hmm. because they're unwilling to allow the the perspective of, hey, interaction with different people changes us Mm -hmm. and change is a good thing, I think. Mm So I think the best thing for... Uh, a faithful Republican to do is to immerse himself or herself with a group of Democrats and see what they think. Likewise for a Democrat, go talk to some Republicans. If you're you're a person of faith, go talk to people who don't share your, your same faith system. Go challenge your ideas. Because as you've mentioned, out of those uncomfortable conversations, there is no restlessness. There's growth that provides rest.
1: Wow. Wow. You know, what you were saying about what people are resisting reminds me of a a phrase that we've said here many times from Scott Cromode, people don't resist change, they resist loss. And there is definitely a distinct sense of loss Mm -hmm. that people are experiencing, that many are experiencing, that I experience. And I, I, I hear it in my conversations with my my friends, when we say things like, remember that those times when you used to be able to just bike through, bike mm-hmm. on your own and you didn't need parents to watch mm-hmm. out for you, you could just bike to the library mm-hmm. during the summer and not worry about, remember those times, those those are longings of losses that we've experienced, mm-hmm. the losses of, of a community that we had before. Um, whether it's, you know, people pointing back to a time when they felt like uni- the United States was a lot more united mm-hmm. or a time when, um, you know, the simple goods were, were, mm-hmm. were, uh, were happening. I do think though, that, um, w- even though many of us may be feeling those losses, um, there are people, it's good to recognize that for, there are people in our country who those, those times don't have the same memories Yeah, that, that those times that we look back to with longing were times of turmoil mm. and hurt and pain for other groups of people mm. within our community. And those that, um, because of that, um, it's, it's not just um, by facing those hurts, we are enabling the entire country to feel a little bit of the pain mm. that people that a small segment of the population had to bear by themselves this whole time. So in in essence we are even though we are fighting you could say we are more united than ever because we're all bearing similar pains. Mm-hmm. And that's that's one thing with the pandemic that that is that is that the, that the pandemic has taught me is that the pandemic has shown that we are all we all get We all receive pain and we all, when we come together in this pain, we can grow. But even with the pandemic, there were groups of people that were adversely affected more than others. Mm -hmm. And so taking the time to listen to their stories, even though it's uncomfortable for me, like we said, that's the best way for us to grow.
0: Yeah, Joey, that is so beautifully stated. I remember just having that conversation with someone uh, years ago. Um, I was ministering in an inner city church, and I grew up in unincorporated Loma, sleepy Loma Linda. Uh, both my parents were professionals. We were middle class, uh, fairly, uh, fairly safe and sheltered childhood. And I I did say, um, hmm, I, I miss those days mm-hmm. when I could go out and ride my bike without without adult supervision. And a friend of mine who I was ministering to in the old in the early in the uh, inner city said, well, I never had those days. Mm. Um, and so to have a conversation with somebody that came from a different context than mm. I did was extremely helpful in, in developing empathy. Mm. And I think that's what we need, regardless of whatever label you want to utilize for yourself. Uh, we need to, the, the antidote, as we've said, to the restlessness of tribalism is compassion and compassion necessitates empathy. And so I think what we're asking our friends out there to do is we just want you to go and be pushed and experience some discomfort uh, by speaking to somebody that doesn't agree with you. Um, now, Joey, before we pray, we listen and we read all of your emails and your comments. And I know that on occasion you send us questions. Please continue to do so. Uh, David Smith, we love you. Thank you for watching all the time. And we will make sure that we never confuse the word imminent, which talks about the God, about God and the God who comes with imminent which, which talks about something that is going to happen. Yes. But what is imminent is that the imminent God will come. So, David, thank you for reminding us of that. And as always, please share your comments, your questions. We read the both of us, read them all. And we love to include you as we have these conversations that we hope are sometimes uncomfortable, but will engender ultimately growth. Joey, can you close us off in prayer?
1: I'd be happy to. <clears throat> to our imminent God, a God who comes, the God who is near. Um, it is sometimes feels like you are so far away when the tragedies and the hurts and, and the challenges that we face every day are pressing in on around us. But you have shown us over and over again that you do not shy away from our pain. You do not shy away from our challenges. You step into them with us. And so we ask that you give us the courage to do the same for our brothers and sisters. That even though we may have a feeling that it isn't our problem, it isn't our challenge, that we will have the same presence of that you do to step in to the challenges, the pain, and the hurt that others around us, even those that we may, dare I use the word hate, um, are experiencing. This is our prayer in Jesus' name, amen.
0: And now go love someone else. Go love someone different. We'll see you next week.